This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, we look at the long-term impacts of the pandemic on test scores and student outcomes. But we are going to start today with experiential learning, the kind of learning that isn't always measured on tests. We are going to talk about Cyber Madness. This is an event coming up the 16th and 17th at Bismarck State College as students from across the state team up and compete to address some of today's biggest cybersecurity issues and, of course, our tech opportunities that will be available to students. We are visiting now with Kathy White. She is a robotics coach and technology coordinator for Alexander Public School. That's about 25 miles south of Williston. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. We're also joined by Troy Jackson II. He is an education associate right here at Prairie Public. Troy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ashley. Glad to be here. Well, Kathy, you brought six students last year. You're bringing six students this year. I bet you're very excited for the second annual Cyber Madness Tournament. Uh, give us a sense of um, what, what students do there. What is this event? Our students are very excited to be there. Um, one of the, the really exciting and, and fun things that they get to experience is delving into what cybersecurity looks like. Um, as they run through this competition, which is a capture the flag type competition, they answer questions, which then lead them into research and finding how to find the answer. So if they don't know the answer to begin with, they need to research it and dig deep into the information that they can find to mm -hmm. be able to come up with a solution. And that solution leads them to the answer, which then gives them the flag. So it's a... Uh, Pretty exciting. Yeah. How do you end up teaching something like this? I imagine on some level there is learning and memorizing and sort of sitting at a desk, but then there's, of course, the, the doing of the things. <laughs> right. Real real world experience. Yeah. I mean, gaming is, plays a big part in this. Um, they, the six students that I have coming, uh, all are gamers, um, not hardcore gamers by any means, but they all know what that is and can do that. Um, which gives them the experience they need to be able to navigate the keyboard and uh, watch m multiple monitors and things like that. In addition to that, being on the robotics team, and all six of these students are either on the robotics team currently or will be next year, um, they learn by doing. So we, we do things like this in class on a regular basis. Yeah, one of the teams is the Salamanders. The other one is the Gordian Knots. I am not anywhere near a big enough, I don't even know, nerd, geek, gamer, <laughs> TV. I don't even know where All this one those. comes yes. from. <laughs> you and me both. It took a little while, and I'm like, mm, yeah, I still don't know. <laughs> Troy, what's Prairie Public's role in all of this? Well, it started off last year um, just getting an email um, from North Dakota Education Tech um, in IT. Um, Tony Auckland, um, a person who was there last year who was heading it off, um, I was able to be in contact with him and Sean Riley, who was the um, North Dakota head IT officer, um, contacted us and wanted to see how we can bring in um, an education element, um, connecting with the students as well as with the teachers there and seeing how we can promote it. Um, how we can um, shoot some great footage <laughs> and great and get some great interviews as well. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did. We took um, dozens and dozens of pictures, had some great interviews with teachers and students, um, as well with um, Paul Alto as well. And, um, yeah, I, I got excited about something that I didn't have no clue about, and that's <laughs> rare. Um, yeah, seeing Paul Alto there, I'm kind of wondering, it, it, do kids get – recruited almost you know going on into into college or or maybe even well last year there are quite a few uh booths and vendors that had uh universities there okay. seeking out students who would be interested in engineering um technology uh IT cyber security um because those are the jobs that are um that are going to be needed in the future yeah. not necessarily the future right now that we're dealing with, um, with things flying in the air all the time, 
these days and getting mm-hmm. shot down. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think we're up to four this week. I think we're up right. to four this week. Um, being able to know how to counteract some of those things is beyond what our generation is accustomed to. <laughs> and so being able right. to be around these high school students um, and the middle school students who did this this past year, um, getting them prepared to what may be encountered in front of them as they get older. Yeah. Well, Kathy, let's talk about that here because we are none of us children ourselves, and I oh, am somewhat <laughs> notorious for just handing my phone off to the nearest teenager you know, to <laughs> fix something I don't have the attention span uh, or the patience to deal with. Um, how are you able to work with these kids who have the advantage of being digital natives but don't necessarily have digital fluency or, you know, the understanding the long-term consequences uh, and impacts of a tech-fueled life. (laughs) One of the things that I I say Alexander likes to pride itself on is the fact that we have implemented technology into our daily routine. Our school is a one-to-one school. Every student has a device that they have access to. Hmm. And with that, they are then taught... um, the skills they need to navigate the device and to navigate the internet as well. Uh, what's an acceptable site to go to? What's not an acceptable link to click on? That mm. kind of thing. Um, those skills are things that everyone needs to know in the future, not just our kids, but us as well. Um, so I, I teach the teachers how to do that as well. It's just one of the things that, that we go through here in Alexander. The other thing that I like to pride myself on with our robotics team and any of the students who are in our TEALS class, which is a Microsoft class, um, they are learning the 21st century skills that they're going to need now in the 22nd century. Things that, that uh, you know, the creativity, communication, collaboration, uh, critical thinking, those critical thinking and problem solving skills that, that they need to be able to do the cybersecurity, the IT work, the yeah. engineering and things that, that is now the needed jobs that, that in spaces that we need to fill. How do you describe, Kathy, Alexander's approach um, as, as a school district in terms of multidisciplinary? Do, are we just segmenting the kids who are really good at technology or are the kids who are really good at, at poetry also doing this? We have everyone involved. Uh, one of the students on, on one of our teams um, he is in mock trial, speech, drama. He's on the robotics team. Um, he does a little bit of everything. One of the other students is um, also, well, I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four students who are on the speech team, um, five who are doing mock trial. So they, they really are not just the, the computer nerds or geeks or techie kids. They are the ones who want to interact with people and want to be able to communicate and learn how to do that and to be able to surf and and do that. What we pride on this past year is, as far as an education team, um, having a digital literacy component and a media literacy component to introduce to students as well as to teachers and parents about how important having media literacy and digital literacy is key Mm -hmm. um, to being able to be a much more responsible um, consumer of information as well as with technology. And um, this past year, we've been to a few schools in North Dakota and Minnesota to promote uh, digital literacy and media literacy and and talking about how PBS Learning Media is a good guide to understanding why as we, as a viewer, need to be mindful of where we get our information from and, mm-hmm. on, and more importantly, how we share that information. Yeah. Well, in, in Troy, in your work with the education department at Prairie Public, you're working with parents, you're working with students, you're working with teachers. Do you feel like you have to have that conversation on responsibility mostly with the students, or do you need to say, hey, parents, don't just shove an iPad at your kids? Well, it varies depending on region. I hear Kathy laughing in the background. <laughs> it, ver- it depends on region because you have these areas in rural, rural North Dakota and Minnesota that will believe anything that they see on a screen. Mm. And so being able to be like, all right, we know we're uh, a broadcasting station, 
but be mindful of what type of information you're giving and getting um, can be uh, uh, conflicting sometimes to directly try to talk to a parent about. And so we can uh, go through the avenue as far as a school and being able to show how that's important to the student and then to the teachers, Mm -hmm. then the parents will hopefully be able to see that, you know, down the line or when the students come home from, you know, instructions. So, yeah, it just depends Mm -hmm. regionally. Yeah. That's Troy Jackson II. He is an education associate right here at Prairie Public. We're also in conversation today with Kathy White. She is a robotics coach and the technology coordinator for Alexander Public Schools, one of the teams competing in the upcoming Cyber Madness tournament happening February 16th and 17th at Bismarck State College. And you can find out more on the Edutech website for uh, North Dakota State. Kathy and Troy, I want to talk to you both about diversity in technology. Uh, On multiple levels here, Kathy, for a long time, it was very male-dominated. Correct. Uh, And before we started recording this conversation, you were trying to decide if you had met. And Troy, you described yourself as the black guy in the room. There has for a long time been a disregard for a lot of different minority representation. If you could both comment on what you have seen uh, developing in the past few years. And Kathy, why don't you go ahead and go first? One of the things that that I've noticed in the past few years is we've definitely gotten more girls involved in our technology classes. Um, I've got four girls on my robotics team this year. That's the highest I've had in the last nine years, which I think is amazing. Um, considering it's a 10 person team and almost half are girls. That's awesome. Um, Our Teals class had several girls in it this season or this semester. Um, It's always been, you know, girls just don't get into the tech stuff as much. And we're noticing here in Alexander that our girls are the ones who are, are starting to push the boundaries a little bit and trying to figure out what they're good at and what they can do with it. Hmm. Um. Just hearing this uh, this explanation reminds me of hidden figures mm-hmm. in regards to how exactly. women in technology as well as in mathematics in the space field mm-hmm. have been disregarded yeah. and yep. labeled as just minorities. Right. And um, I, I like to counter with um, there's more technology out there these days and billions and billions of bytes of information than there is just minority people. Correct. And so being able to try to find a connectivity point um, mm-hmm. within technology, I see that from, and I don't speak for all black people. Um, of course not. <laughs> I, I, I see that it, as far as technology and information, it goes as far as video games or as far as scamming. And I think we need to broaden the perspective of right. how we take in um, technology, utilize it, and learn about how we can um, – do it as far as jobs, as far as uh, working in our communities mm-hmm. and being able to broaden the focus of just building up our uh, lexicon. Sure. Yep. And so um, being able to see Turtle Mountain uh, Community School last year was a treat. And it was, right, which it was, would have an indigenous population. Exactly. Correct. And being yep. able to see how they only had uh, three students, three students there, and they got fourth fourth place. Last year, and I thought they were the uh, the darlings of the tournament last year. <laughs> to to put it um, to put it plainly, because to see them uh, work just as hard to get to a position where they're not expected to be at was a beautiful thing. And um, exactly, I, I would like to say that I hope that they're there this year, mm-hmm. and hopefully other places of um, um, communities in the BIPOC. Uh, community would be able to tap in and understand how this is important and not just fun and games all the time. (laughs) Right. And I think that also, in addition to that, bringing more girls into it um, and and having them experience it and then share with their friends. You know, this isn't hard. This isn't something that that we can't do. We can do anything. Um, Just bringing them into to experience, I yes. think, is, is a big thing. Yeah. 
Kathy, Troy just said it's not just all fun and games. And of course, this is a fun tournament, but they are learning and they are, whether they're realizing it or not, (laughs) addressing some issues in cybersecurity. How do you talk to students, uh, you know, some who are as young as ninth grade about Mm -hmm. cybersecurity in terms that they will sort of understand and, and figure out why it's important to know about this now? The interesting thing with that is, they already know. Hmm. <laughs> they know more than we give them credit for. Um, they hear it, they see it, they read it all on the internet, of course, or in their social media or with their friends. They don't, not many of them watch the news really, but um, they do get the information. When you talk to them about cybersecurity, they know how important it is. They've seen, um, for an example, my email was hacked last week. Hmm. So, you know, as the technology coordinator for the school, why did my email get hacked? Because I'm the technology coordinator for the school. They wanted to see what they could get. And by having that experience, the kids then were able to see, well, this is what I have to do to fix this and to change everything there and and how to, to go around the security aspect of that. So the kids have exposure to the need for cybersecurity all the time. Yeah. One thing I'll add to that is um, we have a, a growing uh, baby boomer generation that is one to involve themselves within the technology that's around them now. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them don't feel comfortable ex- expressing that. Mm-hmm. And so who do they go to? Their grandkids, sure. their right. nieces, their nephews. Yeah. And so there's a there's a conflicting battle with Older generations want <laughs> to understand the technology, but then the younger generation not having the patience to teach them. Correct. <laughs> yeah, that is the thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, we have that here in the school too. Really? Some of our teachers don't understand it, so they mm. go to the kids and say, can you explain this or show me how this works? And the kids can get right in there and do it. For extra credit, of course. <laughs> well, they try. <laughs> That's always the first question. Yes. Just get me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Kathy, you are bringing six students to this year's Cyber Madness Tournament, and you mentioned a team as big as 10. Last census, Alexander's population was 319. (laughs) Yeah. That seems like a pretty decent-sized team for a town that small. It is. Um, We're really excited about the growth we have here in Alexander. Um, Our school population currently doesn't make sense considering the census, but we've got 320 students preschool through through 12th grade. Um, our district is very large. Mm-hmm. We've got a large surface area that we cover. So we've got a lot of people who come in from, from further out of the town area. So mm-hmm. that's how we can have such a large number of students for such a small community. How do you teach team building when it comes to robotics? That's one of my favorite things to teach. And the reason I say that is because it can be funny or it can be serious. We start our year off every year with with icebreaker games and team building games. One of my favorite is the human knot. It's a simple, Mm. easy game. You stand in a circle, you grab hands across the way, and you try to get yourself out of the knot that you're (laughs) in. And it takes patience, communication, teamwork, um, and just the commitment to, to solve the problem. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about teaching or working with the students is being able to show them that this might be an easy program or problem to solve, but it's not, um, it's not the end of the world. It's not difficult. We can do this. I would say also um, as an athlete um, playing football, different states and different parts of the world, um, one thing I realized when it comes to building up a team, it takes a... Uh, intrinsic value for Mm -hmm. the individual to want to get something done. But to team build, you also have to realize the outside values of what your teammates might want to get out of this as well. And I think uh, Bismarck State College did a great job of having the the different uh, teams together in this one hall. Mm -hmm. And because when I think of cybersecurity or when I think of computer games, or just even video games as a whole, I think of the basement in your room 
<laughs> mm-hmm. Mom, call me when dinner is ready. Right, yeah. And All so, those movies that we see and yeah. it yes, portrays it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So it gets portrayed in a way where isolation is, is premium. Mm-hmm. And I think being able to have it at a college like Bismarck, uh, Bismarck State College and having um, Palo Alto bringing in people from the U.K., from um, California, from the East Coast, these kids see that, wow, these people are pretty cool once they get to their jobs and their positions. Maybe I want to do something like that. Right. That's where that intrinsic value comes in. Mm-hmm. And so having those combining forces of being at a college atmosphere and being able to have those students be exposed to that gives a sense of togetherness. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I saw last year. And I just realized Turtle Mountain will be there. They're going to only have three students again. But I hope that... Um, they're able to to get back to that top position again. <laughs> I just wanted to add that in there. Shout out to Turtle Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Kathy, what do you expect will be different in the second annual versus the inaugural competition? Um, I think the students that are attending who have participated in the past are excited because they know what to expect. And the ones that I have coming who are new to it are nervous and excited because they are not sure what to expect. And I think that combination will increase the intensity of the event and increase the excitement that's in the room. I agree. I mean, just naturally from having 10 teams last year, eight to 10 teams last year to having 20, um, Mm -hmm. just double within, you know, the second year. So I can only imagine the momentum effect is going to take after the second year um, going through this event. So I would say one thing that would be different would be that, um, I think there's going to be more engagement between teams now because some of those students will see um, fellow competitors from last year, and then they'll have a reason to spark up conversations. Looking through the program, a lot of um, returning students from the 11th grade are now seniors. Mm -hmm. And so now they're going to have an idea of, all right, maybe I'll go to – you know, Valley City's table this year and see what they have to offer because maybe they're going to be something that I can get as a college student in the future. Um, So I think more engagement and and a little bit more uh, courage to step out their comfort zone um, is going to be present at this one, whereas last year (laughs) everyone was kind of like Kermit frogs and Kermit (laughs) Kermit, uh, Kind of like that typical tech person we were talking about. They're in their own little world. In their own little world, their own little bubble. Yeah. you know, people looking at my Afro crazy like, is he <laughs> is he a cleaning guy or is he really with Prairie Public? <laughs> you know? I agree with Troy in, in the aspect of the kids being more willing to step outside their comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and going and talking to those college representatives who last year they're like, I'm not going to go over there. I'm not going to go to that school. Yeah. Just go check it out. Go see what they're offering. Go yeah. see what might be a good possibility for you in the future. And I think the students that are that are all coming back and then coming new this year will have more of an opportunity to experience that. The North Dakota Cyber Madness High School Tournament is happening February 16th and 17th. The hosting organization, Bismarck State College, it's happening at the National Center of Excellence in Bismarck. We have heard today from Kathy White, a robotics coach and the technology coordinator for Alexander Public School. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And also Troy Jackson II, an education services associate right here at Prairie Public. Troy, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your time. This has been great. Kathy, I look forward to seeing you out there tomorrow. And uh, the reigning champs, uh, James Valley, looking forward to seeing you all out there tomorrow (laughs) too. So I hope you all ready for a great time. Still to come on Main Street, pandemic and high school test scores. But first, this news. Good afternoon from the Prairie Public Newsroom. I'm Todd McDonald. The North Dakota House has passed a measure supporters say is designed to cut down on fraudulent signatures on initiative petitions. House Bill 1230 was introduced after the North Dakota Supreme Court overturned a decision by Secretary of State Al Jagger to reject the term limits measure from going on the ballot. Jagger rejected the measure because he said the petitions had not gathered enough valid signatures. And Attorney General Drew Wrigley said there was fraud throughout that signature-gathering process. The High Court instead ordered the measure be placed on the ballot. House Bill 1230 imposes fines for willful submission of invalid signatures. 
Bismarck Republican Representative Mike Nathy says it holds the initiative sponsors accountable. And just so you know, this does not do anything to impair the current initiated process. They can still go get their 20, 30,000 signatures. You just have to make sure it's done legally and right and, and meet that high bar, especially if we're going to be talking about passing a measure that deals with the Constitution of North Dakota. There's nothing wrong with asking people to be responsible for what they do and for responsible for who they hire. Opponents argue the state Supreme Court did not find fraud in the term limits measure. Minot Republican Representative Jeff Hoverson. This bill, if it passes, is punitive on the process that is supposed to be for the people, and it's got revenge all over it, I believe. The bill passed 61 to 30. It now goes for consideration in the state Senate. The Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Dakota Caring Foundation and Center for Social Research at NDSU have released a study on the health and well-being in North Dakota. Prairie Public's Dave Thompson has this story. The study looks at the social determinants of health, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age in North Dakota. We do well in some areas and not so well in others. Nancy Hodur is director of the NDSU Center. She says economically North Dakota is doing well. She says one area where the state doesn't do so well is in the area of early childhood education. We've only got one-third of our three- and four-year-olds that are enrolled in early childhood education. That's the lowest percentage in the country, and the national average is nearly 50 percent. Hodur says she's hoping the results of the study will help groups who work in these areas to make an impact with policymakers and the public. And she says an important takeaway is it's not just one thing. And all the issues are interrelated. Health and well-being is much more than just being able to go to the doctor. Dan Conrad is president of Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Dakota and the chair of the Caring Foundation. He says going forward, the foundation wants to build a data-driven foundation for further conversations about health and well-being in North Dakota. To drive alignment and understanding and opportunities to invest, whether it be from the state, whether it be from us as a uh, mission-driven you know, healthcare organization and other stakeholders across the state, and find the best places to invest and create opportunities for better health for all. The foundation hosted a roundtable discussion in Bismarck. Another roundtable is scheduled for Fargo next week. For Prairie Public, I'm Dave Thompson. From the Prairie Public Newsroom, I'm Todd McDonald. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and we have lived during a pandemic long enough to know some of the long-term consequences. Today, we look at the impact on education. Dr. Rupak Gandhi is the superintendent of schools in Fargo, and he is talking about the declining test scores that students have faced during the pandemic. He visits with Prairie Public CEO and host of the Prairie Pulse television show, John Harris. Dr. Gandhi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're here today to talk about a recent report from the National Assessment of Educational Progress Reading and Math Exams that uh, the report found, I guess, an alarming decline among students during the last two years and the effect of uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, maybe can you give us an overview of these findings? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the notion of alarming decline is, is interesting because the purpose of the assessment as a, a national norm re- reference assessment um, is benchmarked against students that are taking that t- assessment nationally as well and then what standards are mastered on a year-to-year basis. But I think what was discovered for the national assessment that you're referencing, the NAEP, was that there was a decline in student mastery of both English language arts and in mathematics compared to previous years. So students during the pandemic that took the assessment at that point in time, the assessment were not showing as much mastery of the academic content for those standards related to those two content areas. So why do you think this happened? Is it squarely on the fault of uh, how learning took place uh, during COVID? 
schools are one part of a child's ecosystem. And during the pandemic, there were so many different factors that contributed to a change in both the way instruction was delivered, but there's also just the way that uh, students' home environment changed, their parents' environment changed, because we were all dealing with something new, which were new conditions, different types of limitations and restrictions, and even the delivery of instruction itself. So there are correlations, but there aren't causations that I can make to generalize that, because there are so many different factors that impact both uh, student health and student academics as well. And in this notion, we're only measuring student mastery of English, language arts, and math curriculum as they were assessed on a standard as well. But I think that uh, there's no secret that our students learn to be resilient. They learn to uh, use technology in ways that they haven't before. They use to communicate uh, using a social platform for their educational needs as well. So there's a lot of learning that happened as well. But when focusing solely on this uh, assessment, uh, education is uh, a dynamic feature that involves relationships that students have with their community, with their teachers, with the content that they're engaging in, and all of those things are a factor. So it's hard to generalize just one reason alone why you could have seen a, uh, a decline in those scores. Mm-hmm. What impact are teacher shortages having on students and scores? Can can you see that in any degree? Yeah, I think just once again, teacher... Um, the impact of teacher shortages is going to be felt through a wide variety of experiences in schools. I can't directly say that uh, there is a causation without doing a regression analysis for a specific factor in a specific school. But obviously we know that teacher shortages have an impact uh, from an operational standpoint that if you have less teachers, and that means that you're going to have to have more students uh, in, in, in those classrooms to be served by the certified teachers that you do have. And that can impact relationships to to some level. Uh, does that impact scores? That just depends on a wide variety of other factors like I mentioned before as well. But teacher impact is or teacher shortages is going to have an impact on school operations. It's going to be limiting the resources that you have and most importantly it's going to be limiting the great professionals that we have and the ability to build relationships with just individuals that are um, being able to provide students with a certified area of expertise in their content area. You know, I, I was told that it appears that the eighth grade assessments were really uh, impacted by COVID. Why is that grade so crucial? And uh, how do we get kids back on track? You know, I, I would probably have to look at some of the great content area experts in, in our school district to lead on them to look at why specifically in eighth grade, which content area assessments uh, dropped down. Um, so it would be speculation. One of the pieces that I know that initially when I was looking at the data that stood out to me was at the elementary level. And as we dived a little bit deeper to that, uh, some of that you know, again, I don't want to make a generalized statement, uh, but one of the pieces that that did stick out that we do know happened um, at that level was the last nine weeks when when COVID first hit North Dakota and we as districts had to adapt to going remote and putting together a plan. Those standards weren't covered, and especially in the math area. And, and those were the standards that were often when we were able to dive a little bit deeper and take a look. Um, on the assessment, those were the standards that weren't mastered, were the areas that were directly, were supposed to be taught and scheduled for those nine weeks. The same thing could be the case for the eighth grade assessments. I would just have to dive a little bit deeper to to know that and lean on our our teachers and our content area experts. Yeah, I understand the report also found that the pandemic had a disproportionate negative effect on the most vulnerable uh, who fared maybe the worst. Can you comment on this and which group of uh, kids might have been most impacted? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we as educational systems are always looking at our most vulnerable students. And those could be students that um, identify with a certain racial demographic marker. They could be students that are on individual education plans, students that are English language learners. It could also be students that are coming from free and reduced lunch backgrounds. Now, we know that during the pandemic, switching to remote learning required access to technology. Uh, as a school district and in, as a state, I think North Dakota did an incredible job. I believe that it was shared earlier in the pandemic that um, w- when we started, we had over 90 percent of the families in North Dakota that had access to Internet uh, it is my understanding that I know in Fargo, but I think all of our school districts made sure that 100% of the students had the opportunity to get access if they didn't have that. Did that happen or not? That would require individual conversations. We have over 11,000 students. So um, if someone wasn't able to take advantage of the opportunities to get 
access, then that could have hindered um, uh, their learning. That could have created some of those pieces. Uh, the pandemic was had a different impact on different family dynamics at different times. So uh, we had parents that were dependent on their jobs, having to stay home and unable to work. And what does that impact mean? We have students that had to take on other responsibilities, whether it's caring for a sibling that would have been at school, uh, making sure that they're doing that with their own learning. So, so many different impacts, especially for individuals that didn't necessarily have a stable background. Um, so understood why the content area would not have been the focus, but I would have said that they probably grew during that time in both their character, resiliency, and other aspects of that are going to contribute to their learning and who they are down the road as well. Uh, were there any differences among schools if some schools reopened to in-person learning earlier than maybe some uh, larger school districts did? Yeah, um, that would just be extremely hard to identify solely because based on when schools reopened or not. We have variants between schools all the time. Uh, that could be a wide variety of factors. Uh, John Hattie is a leading re- educational researcher that talks about the biggest factors every year. He does meta-analysis on that impacts your achievement. And there are so many different factors that impact your achievement. So to be able to attribute just when a school opened or when in-person instruction resumed to the relationship with the test scores would be... Um, I think would be creating a causation from a, a correlation that could or could not be the case. Well, every school district maybe did it differently or did it. Di- can you talk about how what the transition was like when you kind of went back to in-classroom learning? Yeah. Our process was we created a COVID-19 instructional plan committee that met with local health officials. Um, the committee consisted of parents from all age levels, uh, staff members from different uh, arts, parts of our organization and local health. And we looked at data impacting Cass County. We looked at epidemiological implications of bringing students back at different levels or based on what was happening within our community, and we made different uh, decisions accordingly. So I think for every school district that was impacted by the pandemic, it looked different because we had a change in instructional model that institutionally we'd been incorporating for years, if not decades or almost even hundreds of years, which was your traditional aspect of at least that in-person instruction. And we, in a very short time, adapted to use technology to provide remote options, to provide hybrid options where we change the scheduling of students or how many students are in a class at a time while also maintaining the health and safety needs of improving how we keep classes uh, cleaner, how we make sure that sanitization practices have been improved. So I commend every educator across the nation for going through that in that short period of time because uh, we have to change our behaviors to be able to change the way that we work. Yeah, and, and well, can you comment a little bit more? You, you said it a little bit, how remote learning was not necessarily the same across the, especially the nation or the state of North Dakota or, or Minnesota, and that, that the factors that impacted this. I mean, what were the things that had to happen uh, to help remote learning? Because they said it wasn't equal. Yeah. And, you know, that's not the goal. I mean, in education, we're not trying to be equal. We're trying to be equitable, which is giving every child what they need to to be able to be successful. And the reality of the situation is that no two learners are the same. So even with an in-person instruction, uh, an individual might do a really great job of being able to retain information in a sit-and-get model with where the teacher is speaking for 15 minutes and they're taking notes and then being able to be assessed on that, whereas another learner might need something very different. They may need more visual cues. They may need more auditory supplements. They may just have a different uh, kinesthetic learning modality where they need to be more active to be able to content that same mastery. The challenges with remote learning are no different, too, and uh, same with the expectations for parents, communities, and students as well. In a K-12 school system, you have students that can range anywhere from four years old to 18 years old, and uh, two models of remote learning are synchronous and asynchronous. Asynchronous means self-paced, self-controlled. You do that on your own. Synchronous means that you have a live facilitator there with you during that same moment in time. Uh, Districts had to make independent decisions of For what age group are we going to use what model? For what amount of time? What does content delivery look like? What technology do we have at our disposal that we can lean on? And then also, what are the family dynamics that we serve? Are we going to have parents that are going to be able to be there to support students? Or are there going to be students that are working independently? And then how do we make sure that the opportunity we provide for one student is equitable for a student that may not have the same background or family dynamic or 
have other barriers such as language, uh, technology access, or otherwise. So it's always going to be varied, but it should be varied because um, equal is not the goal. It's, it's really being equitable to make sure that every child has what they need. Are teachers and administrators doing anything to try to rectify uh, the declines in reading and math, or is it just teaching is, just moves on, or is there anything specific that you're looking at to, to address these issues? You know, it's a, it's a hard question to answer yes or no, and are they doing anything differently, because teaching is moving on, but teaching has always been doing something differently for the kids that didn't learn. Uh, I think, you know, when we look at an assessment as an end goal, then we're saying that that's the only standard that we're measuring academics by. Um, and that's just really not fair to teachers because learning involves so much more than just the retainment of an English standard that's on a standardized assessment that's used for benchmarking, not really as an end goal. Uh, I view more of academics and education like health. Uh, there are multiple factors that impact my health. And during the pandemic, uh, we didn't call it a virology loss. We didn't call it an immunology loss, just like we don't necessarily, in my opinion, it doesn't need to be a learning loss because, yeah, there was a loss in learning as measured in some, some assessments a certain way, but there's also a learning gain in other areas, um, specifically around social-emotional development, which to some level there was a loss with the loss of relationships, but there was a gain in what you're able to do, be, connectivity, technology-wise, some skill sets that students have. All of those things are transferable skills. So the goal of an educator is to ask yourself the same questions that we call our PLC questions, which is who learned today, who didn't, what am I doing differently for those that did, and what am I doing differently for those that didn't. And that was the same before the pandemic. It's going to be the same afterwards, and that's our job. Can you talk about how stressful uh, the uh, pandemic was on teachers and how they're coping with it now? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic had an impact on everyone, and it impacted everyone very differently because I think whether it's personally or professionally, the way that we were accustomed to our daily routines and habits, our workplace, and even the way we lived our lives, that that changed. And it changed on the decisions that we made. It changed on the guidance that we received from the city and the community. So I think stress, if we're defining stress truly to be uh, a new burden that we didn't count for or we didn't plan for, then it impacted everyone in a certain way. And it, um, But it also was probably different for individuals, no different than probably how pandemic impacted journalism, impacted media. Um, it had an impact on everything we did. Yeah, in retrospect, could things have been done differently? Of course, things could always be done differently. But, you know, what would you have done different uh, with the pandemic as far as teaching kids or getting them back in classrooms? You know, that's a, I don't know if I'm able to answer that question any differently than I would tonight about what would I have done differently about today. Because as an educator, my job is to really focus on, you know, was I able to serve as many students as I can today? Um, Knowing that systemically with a lot of of different factors at play, there are some students that benefited from the educational system delivered during the pandemic, and there are some students that didn't. So I wouldn't want to do anything differently from the students that were able to learn and be successful. I'd want to do everything differently from the students that weren't, and that's no different for the students that are in person today that are not learning as well. I'd want to do everything differently tomorrow if I could. Is teacher retention and teacher pay still big issues for you in the district? Uh, I think they're big issues across the nation. I don't know if they're necessarily paired together. Uh, I think you have. I think we have to look at the root causes of, of teacher retention, uh, teacher recruitment, which is independent of retention, and then also teacher pay. I think all three deserve and are worthy of very independent conversations, but I would not associate that teacher recruitment and retention is just a factor of pay. Well, Dr. Gandhi, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Rupak Gandhi in conversation with Prairie Pulse host John Harris. You can see all archived episodes of Prairie Pulse on our YouTube channel. Tom Ezern is next. North Dakota Vision Services School for the Blind provides individualized services and resources to people of all ages with visual impairment to empower them to achieve their goals and live independently. Services include training and orientation and mobility, technology, braille, and daily living skills. Training is provided in the home, community, place of employment, and at the North Dakota School for the Blind. More information is available by calling 800-421-1181. 
This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Songs evolve, of course, when they are being written to even how they are remembered. Historian Tom Ezern goes through the origins of a very popular ballad, one that used to include a coyote. Here he is with this week's Plains Folk essay, The Hungry Coyote. The Prairie Ballad, Little Old Sod Shanty on the Claim the anthem of the settler society on the Great Plains, may have originated in western Kansas in 1880, flowing from the pen of the homesteading printer Frank E. Jerome. But it was a hardy traveler. During the 1880s, the song percolated in Dakota Territory, especially along the Jim River, living a quiet life of little public notice, only to emerge full-blown as a popular favorite in 1883. Details of the exchange remain inscrutable, but its contours are clear from newspaper evidence. In June 1883, the song appears in the Arcadia Reporter. That's Arcadia, Kansas. The text contains vivid details not present in early iterations of the ballad. A hungry coyote stinking through the grass, for instance. And, more importantly, it modifies the plot line. The song no longer celebrates two buddies batching together on a homestead. Rather, it channels a plaintiff claimant struggling alone, wishing his dear wife would join him in the West and foreseeing them populating the plains with a happy agricultural society. Swiftly, the ballad populated the press across the Sunflower State. And once again, textual details matter. Key 1883 texts that summer situate the singer as Happy as a clam on these lands of Uncle Sam In the rich and fertile valley of the Jim And there is no James River in Kansas. The same texts also speak not of coyotes but rather prairie wolves, thus employing the Northern Plains term for Canis Latrans. Quickly, in Kansas, the ballad was recognized as a reworking of Jerome's original song, while spreading across the other states of the plains and, notably, resurging in Dakota Territory. In 1883, we find Little Old Sod Shanty in the Mitchell Republican, the Hope Pioneer, the Dickey County Leader, and elsewhere, Dakota-wise. The author of A Ransom County History details how in 1883 a substitute typesetter at the Ransom City Pilot heard the ballad circulating and, quoting, was anxious to have a copy of her own, so she worked long and earnestly setting it up. Little Old Sod Shanty not only saw print across the territory, it also won the hearts of Dakota pioneers, such that in memory, as celebrant old settlers on public occasions, they made the song central to rituals of remembrance. Newspaper accounts say that in 1892, at Williamsburg Schoolhouse, Emmons County, following an address entitled The American Pioneer, a male duo comprising Charles Stewart and D.H. Yoder rendered a version of Little Old Sod Shanty on the Claim that registered resounding approval. In 1909, an organized gathering of the old settlers of the Red River Valley in Grand Forks opened with the Toastmaster requesting those assembled join in singing Little Old Sod Shanty on the Claim. And they knew the words. Singing them, according to local press, with a familiarity which harkened back to the old sod shanty and hungry coyote days of the early settlers. A couple months later, there was a meeting in the same city of the State Grand Army of the Republic, opened by one Comrade Ball of Grafton, a beloved raconteur, who got up and sang Little Old Side Cheney on the Claim. It was, a reporter tells us, the big hit of the evening. As it was at multiple Chautauquas and old settler gatherings in Valley City, where citizens sang fondly. The hinges are of leather, the windows are not glass, while the roof it lets the howling blizzard in. And I hear the hungry coyote as he sneaks up through the grass, round my little old sod shanty on the claim. 
Dr. Tom Eastern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Still to come on Main Street, more history with Dakota Daybook. Support for Prairie Public is provided by the John and Elaine Andrist Charitable Trust, supporting the communities of Northwest North Dakota. Information at nwndcommunityfoundation.org. This is Dakota Datebook for February 15th. In the heart of wintertime, when your furnace warms your house but dries the air, static electricity accumulates. So when you touch a light switch, you can be zapped by a spark. And when you pull on your winter sweater, it can become a clinging swarm of sparks. Static electricity surrounds us, and it has always existed in dry air, as on this date in 1884, when the Bismarck Tribune's editor noted that the atmosphere for the last few weeks was unusually charged with electricity. Many Bismarck residents noticed that a spark would fly from one's hand every time anyone opened a stove door or touch other metal surfaces. Those indoor jolts had become a common experience that winter. Static electricity also creates other electrical phenomena. The most common are the thunderstorms of summer. But less common is ball lightning, also called fireballs. Few ever see ball lightning. One who did, a writer named Henry Wallace Phillips, experienced the phenomenon in 1885 at age 16. Phillips and a friend were riding horses in the countryside near Mandan when a great, black, hammering, smashing, crashing Dakota thunderstorm approached. A perfect column of lightning zipped from cloud to earth, and Phillips saw two masses of fire dancing over the prairie. The two friends, paralyzed with fear, watched the ball lightning shoot around like white-hot cannonballs, casting a glow on the ground around them. In other seasons, higher in the atmosphere, you find the aurora borealis, the northern lights, caused by electrical particles from the sun striking Earth's atmosphere. Closer to the ground, there's St. Elmo's fire, a buildup of atmospheric electricity that discharges in dust storms. It has made rare appearances in North Dakota. A cowboy named Ben Bird told of herding steers near the Dakota Badlands, saying, an electric storm would put St. Elmo lights on the cattle horns and horses' ears in the form of a glowing luminosity that mysteriously passed from steer to steer. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Dr. Steve Hoffbeck. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota. North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. We live in a world of viruses. Every time we take a breath in, we breathe in probably thousands of different viral strains. Researchers spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to identify the ones we really need to worry about. Have they been looking in the wrong place? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. That's it for this Wednesday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, when the weather gives you lemons, well, you just double down and think about how to preserve lemons and capture a little bit of sunshine. Sue Balcom's relentless positivity is here for Main Street Eats. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.